Hello, this is the latest episode in our Learning from Crisis Connection series. The series explores how the pandemic is changing our relationship with shared space, community engagement, culture, connectivity and more. This episode is about how COVID-19 has affected children, young people and families and the impact this is having on employment, education and our use of public space. The closure of schools and nurseries back in March turned the lives of parents and caregivers upside down and brought the connection between childcare and employment firmly into the spotlight. The UK's early years childcare sector was already struggling and it's been hit hard by COVID. Up to one in four nurseries may close by Christmas, which will have a huge impact on children's early education and the lives of working parents, especially mothers. Where nurseries are closing is also revealing. The Sutton Trust estimates that in the most disadvantaged areas, a third of nurseries may be forced to close because they can't afford to stay open. School closures have also had a bigger impact on disadvantaged children, particularly black, Asian and minority ethnic children. These children are disproportionately from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, more likely to live in overcrowded and multi-generational homes and less likely to have good access to online learning. And what about children's play during the pandemic? Play is critical for keeping children mentally and physically well and for teaching them how to socialise. Lockdown highlighted the importance of outdoor public space for children's play, particularly in London, where lots of families don't have access to a private garden. As we move into autumn, schools have reopened and more people are returning to workplaces, but there are fears of a second peak and local lockdowns. How will the complex interrelationships between childcare, education, employment and public space evolve in the next few months and beyond? And what should national and local policymakers be doing to address these issues? To answer some of these questions, today I'm talking with three experts on children and families. Lucy Stevens is head of co-production at New Economics Foundation. Co-production is a way of working that brings together people's lived experiences with professional skills to design and deliver better services. Lucy's currently working with parents to deliver parent-led childcare. Dr. Zubeda Hack is the former interim director of the Runnymede Trust and a member of the Independence Age, a group providing scientific advice to the UK government and public on the COVID-19 crisis. Zubeda has a strong research and policy background in ethnicity and inequality. She's also written widely on race and crime, citizenship and integration issues. Tim Gill's an independent academic, advocate and consultant on childhood. He focuses on the changing nature of children's play and free time and their evolving relationships with the people and places around them. His book, Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities, will be published by Reba in February 2021. Welcome. Lucy, could you tell us how the pandemic has affected the childcare sector? Yes, yeah, so to be clear, talking about the childcare sector, I'll be focusing particularly on care for children between 0 and 5 years old. But it's important to also acknowledge that there are over 4 million working women who have children under the age of 10. Um, and many of those working parents rely also on the wraparound care that schools can offer in terms of breakfast clubs and after school clubs. And much of that is also closed at the moment. So we shouldn't ignore the pressures coming from there, but in particular in, in the childcare and the early education sector. So those children not five. That sector provides two really kind of key um, outcomes. One is to address um, early years inequality and close the educational gap for children from um, more disadvantaged backgrounds. 
And also it enables parents when it's working well to make choices about how they balance employment and caring responsibilities. Before the pandemic, the sector was under pressure um, and its fragility has been entirely exposed during the lockdown. So about 85% of childcare places are um, in Ofsted registered childcare places are provided by for-profit providers. So whilst it was possible in local areas to have clear coordination of whether schools would open or close or whether they'd form kind of regional hubs, um, every provider pretty much was left to make their own decisions about their financial viability of remaining open. And with such a significant lockdown, um, most settings saw a huge decrease in the number of children who are actually needing to use places, just key worker children and vulnerable children. So it became financially impossible for many settings to stay open, but that has had then a huge impact on key worker families, many of whom um, have previously relied heavily on grandparents to, to help fill in the gaps around the, the shift patterns that they work, um, and also for more vulnerable children um, who in many cases found their settings may be closed and were then being expected to, to, to go to other settings um, or to travel further distances. The reasons for that precarity are, are multiple, but ultimately comes down to funding to deliver high quality early years opportunities for children costs money 80 percent of, of that funding is um, staffing um, we've got a hugely undervalued and underpaid childcare workforce 98 percent of them are women and so the costs of of keeping settings open despite sort of the the offer of support that came mainly through uh, the same support that businesses were getting so um, you know rent um, and and business loans and things has meant that for a lot of settings that they're under real pressure. The latest surveys are showing one in four settings expect to close for good by Christmas, which would mean a loss of around 250,000 um, childcare places. 70% who are operating at the moment are running in a deficit because even though they have now reopened to more than just key worker families, the number of children coming back is still relatively low. Um, and that's for a whole range of reasons. It may be that families are still furloughed or working from home and so trying to work differently. It may be that families are shielding or very concerned about the health consequences. Or it may be that people have lost work and are not able to continue to pay for those places. But I guess childcare historically has been seen as, as a household issue and an option. Um, what the pandemic has shown is it's a critical infrastructure. It's as important as roads and railways. And if we don't have a healthy and sustainable and flourishing early years sector we can't talk about jobs 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 and getting people back to work because families and particularly women who've taken a up disproportionate amounts of responsibility around care cannot return to workplaces if their children aren't, aren't safe and cared for well i think lucy has raised the very important point that first of all that this pandemic isn't just a health crisis it's it's also a social and economic crisis but what lucy said very succinctly um i think is that how women how women more than 50 percent of this population and the considerations around women particularly in terms of child care how they really have been invisibilized in, in, in the approach towards this, in the government's approach towards this pandemic. And what I mean by that is we have a government at the moment that has said, for instance, that, uh, well, when it comes to schooling, has, has not really considered the impact 
on parents and in particular women um, as Lucy rightly pointed out we now know from survey evidence that the the that um, the impact of children being at home has disproportionately fallen on women and that's not just socially economically it's also fallen on women and we know from survey evidence that women from deprived backgrounds including black and ethnic minority backgrounds have admitted that they've had to skip meals in order to feed their children the important issue here is that childcare has been stripped out of the approach to the economy to dealing with COVID-19. And, and what I mean by that is we've talked, we've seen quite a lot in this pandemic. We've heard quite a lot about the caring economy, about, about care workers, about key workers, about us helping each other. But what we haven't seen very much about is how government has made decisions that impact highly on, on women. Um, and we have seen in areas, in deprived areas and from black and ethnic minority groups, the intersectional aspects of that have really um, been brought to the fore because we know that black and ethnic minority women in particular are much more likely to be poorer compared to their white counterparts. Um, and we know that in deprived areas, childcare is already a huge issue. Um, and so we've got, if you like, a perfect storm of factors where because the government hasn't considered childcare um, deprived communities as well as black and ethnic minority communities have been hit disproportionately hard. Zubaydi, you mentioned um, that women from um, black, Asian and ethnic uh, communities have been more heavily affected by this. How have children from these communities been affected by both COVID and lockdown? Well, if you think about the sort of more local lockdowns that have happened after the main lockdown, um, They've been in predominantly deprived areas, you know, Leicester, Manchester, Bolton, Blackburn and Darwin, all of those areas. Now, those areas have high proportions of black and ethnic minority communities. So we've got, if you like, once again, this perfect storm of factors where we have black and ethnic minority groups living in those areas. They are in insecure and um, low wage. They are in insecure and low wage jobs. Um, Child care is a huge issue for women, but for the children, of course, local lockdowns has also meant that they can't go out as much. They can't play as much. And we've heard quite a lot from this government this summer about the educational and the educational gap for children and how children needed to return to school and so on. What we didn't hear very much about from the Secretary of State for Education, Gavin Williamson, is how important play, socialization, peer-to-peer -peer contact is for children, and how psychologically important that is for children. Wealthier middle-class parents have been able to return to one-to-one -to -one tennis, you know, the other extracurricular activities where you can maintain some distance. There's been absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing for children from deprived areas in terms of that social activity. And Independent Sage, of which I am a member of, we had said during the pandemic, we had said back in June that the government should provide summer schools for children, and in particular for children from deprived areas, in which we know black and ethnic minority children are disproportionately likely to live there. Because summer school, it wouldn't have to be based on schooling, it wouldn't have to be the school staff, but it would provide 
if you had them in ventilated areas in football you know football stadiums that are not being used wedding marquees that weren't being used you could have it in all sorts of places but it would provide that important social emotional pastoral psychological support that children have been missing in the last several months Tim, the importance of play then, um, Zubeda suggested, has been overlooked by policymakers during lockdown. How have children been playing during lockdown and what sort of access have they had to play spaces? Well, I think one of the insights that we gained during the early stage of lockdown um, was, in fact, that, that, that children still have an appetite for play that we that we many adults underestimate and that they really craved uh, that that uh, sense of freedom and social contact, um, time and space uh, with friends, and, and that that actually cut across the social spectrum. Um, but Zubeda is right that as the, the, the kind of lockdown measures eased, families with the resources to do so were able to make use of you know, paid for facilities. They often live in, in neighborhoods that have better access to green space, both public uh, space and also there, of course, gardens. But uh, you know, uh, poorer families, families in uh, apartments, um, black and minority ethnic families who typically live in poorer neighbourhoods uh, in, in many parts of the country, were left behind by that. You know, we actually saw evidence, particularly of primary-aged children, of you know significant decreases in their level of well-being that of course we, it's not easy to show cause and effect but there are sort of many child psychologists who were clear that actually this was a almost a kind of a rather cruel real-time experiment um that i think shows the importance of play and i also felt there was a mismatch and again zubed is hinted at this between what families were, were seeing from their own children and the kind of lack of attention from government at, at any level and and you know there was frankly, a bit of a farce around the reopening of playgrounds, um, which I won't go into in any detail, but which revealed, I think, the complete lack of um, thought um, that anyone in central government had given to the question of how we uh, open up these public spaces for children to play. I think Tim's absolutely right to, to talk about green space, because, I mean, that, that's the thing that this pandemic has really shone a light on, on those inequalities that are not just economic but also social and and the social inequalities um you know have, have sort of they are around childcare, around domestic violence but the green space aspect has really been overlooked i mean the government's still not talking about green space but we know that deprived areas have on average 11 times less green spaces than more advantaged areas. And of course, those areas are also, as I mentioned, disproportionately um, have residents from black and ethnic minority groups. So you, you've got this, you've got black and ethnic minority groups, just people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who have less access to green space. We also know that that green space is of poorer quality. We know that those areas have had second local lockdowns. So it's not just the educational aspect that's been ignored. It's that whole dimension of what is important for children. I mean, essentially, and I don't think I'm putting this too strongly, children have been neglected. Children have been completely neglected in this pandemic. 
And just to come in there, it, it's worth reminding ourselves, I'm sure many people are aware of this, but that in a way you could say children have been made a, a sort of sacrificial lambs in this pandemic because of course the disease itself uh, thankfully leaves the vast majority of children uh, entirely unaffected. So that the measures that have been brought in, you know, in effect, we're asking children to make the most enormous sacrifices. Of course, we're not asking, we're telling them <laughs> that they have to make the most enormous sacrifices for the wider benefit of pandemic control. And, you know, at the very least, um, government needs to acknowledge that. But I agree with Zubedu, you know, we need a, a much stronger lens on uh, the impact of these control measures on children uh, in the future. We haven't really come out of the first wave of the pandemic and we can see that that once again coronavirus cases daily coronavirus cases is escalating rapidly we are literally on the verge of a second wave and it worries me enormously that the government haven't really thought about the impact on children of of those lockdowns again children need consistency and they need routine as well as play and and i think at the moment you're absolutely right tim to say that they're sacrificial lambs because they had nothing to do with this pandemic lucy perhaps you have some thoughts about what national and local government should be doing in the next couple of months in terms of interventions or policy yeah so i think there's a there's a few things that come together here um we've talked a lot about green space and, and one of the things that's quite shocking when you look at current legislation around childcare is that preschool settings don't have to have access to um, uh, gardens um, and their own kind of outdoor space, so long as you can guarantee that you'll take the children somewhere outdoors on a daily basis. So in the short to medium term, we really need to be looking closely at where, where provision is and, and how we can ensure that some of those existing green spaces can really be maximised for, for children's use. And there's been talk of, I think it's Robert Health and in the um, Education Select Committee sort of made the point that we've managed these Nightingale hospitals, but what about these Nightingale schools or outdoor spaces? You know, we know for, for children to really thrive and, and for their well-being to be better that those kind of smaller groups with with high opportunities for play and attachment are really really important so how can we make better use of, of these existing green spaces and we've got that wealth of knowledge from forest school approaches and all of these different things that, that we could really be capitalizing on in terms of early years particularly that the, the challenge particularly as we're coming towards the end of furlough is that the sector has had a staffing crisis for a very long time and, and one of the things that that we were seeing um, was whilst there were over 500 settings lost a month for the 500 childcare places lost every month for the sort of 12 months before the crisis, there was th those were disproportionately closures in poorer areas, and we had this this crazy situation of over provision in wealthier areas whilst there was still under provision in poorer areas. And all of the research during the pandemic, and again the Sutton Trust has done some work on this, is suggesting that childcare settings in poorer areas are going to be under the biggest pressure. So it's essential that we don't let that infrastructure crumble because once it's gone, it's a, it's a huge task to, to rebuild it. So we need to look at funding interventions that will allow the sector to have the flexibility to retain the staff they already have, um, perhaps moving people into part-time furlough rather than um, an either a full-time post or huge cost at keeping many members of staff on because they need to be able to, to remain in post. We could do with more support to ensure that the quality of, of 
the childcare provision is better. So we could be using this as a time to really invest in greater education um, and build the skills of the sector so that it remains there when and as parents are, are ready to come back and, and to begin to use that more. But also we've got to tackle the cost of childcare. And um, NEF has designed a childcare infrastructure fund, which is based on what's happened in, in other countries with similar structures, which sees a move away from the very complex and complicated free hours structure that only ever covers a proportion of the total cost of childcare and instead focuses on paying for the actual staffing costs and overheads of delivering childcare. If we could address our funding in that way, we get away from this mix and muddle, but we, we also begin to pay for the true cost of childcare and cut down perhaps on some of that profit motive, which may be pushing prices up whilst keeping salaries and quality low in, in some settings. The point about um, forest school and outdoor learning, uh, especially in the early years, I. I I have a bit of a vested interest. I'm the patron of the Forest School Association, so uh, fly the flag for, you know, play-based outdoor learning. But it really should be a no-brainer right now. Should be absolutely. If there was ever a time when there should be a strategic push towards um, more and richer outdoor learning, uh, actually across the school uh, and preschool sectors, then it's now. I absolutely agree with you, um, Tim, um, and also with Lucy. Lucy, look. But going back to the issue of childcare, I think there are short-term and long-term consequences for the devastating loss of childcare in deprived areas. And short-term, um, as, as uh, Lucy and Tim and others, uh, and you have, yourself have said, Sophie, is that um, that has an enormous impact on women in general, but on women from um, poorer socioeconomic areas. And that's because they are, of course, struggling to put food on the table, as well as looking after the children. So that childcare, and in particular, affordable government-supported childcare in deprived areas is absolutely essential. It was essential before the pandemic, but has certainly become more essential during the pandemic, when, when children have been at home. But in the long term, I think we need to ask what will happen to gender equality? What will happen to all the hard won gains that we've had with gender equality in the workplace if we don't have affordable government supported childcare in deprived areas, if we don't have the furlough scheme being extended during local lockdowns? in those areas, women's careers are going to be paused and arguably go backwards. Gender equality will be going backwards. And so in terms of using this as a time to invest then, um, we've, we've talked a lot about different types of children's infrastructure from childcare to green spaces to playgrounds. How could investment in children's infrastructure contribute to both green recovery but also economic recovery and could it also challenge inequalities? So uh, that phrase children's infrastructure I think is, is um, it's really helpful to unpack that a bit. Um, we, we've talked about childcare, of course education um, and green space but it actually goes into the, the qualities of, of neighbourhoods. So if you look at the neighbourhoods where families live um, then streets are part of children's infrastructure walking and cycling networks are part of children's infrastructure and you know there's a, a, a very lively um, debate and indeed practice um, and some 
controversy about trying to repurpose streets. Again, one of the things that we learned in the early stages of lockdown was that actually streets, when they're empty of traffic, can become places where all sorts of other things can happen, where families can socialize, where children can play, and so on. And, and, and that also points to the way that um, smart responses to the pandemic also can act as a transition to kind of a, a tackling other issues that await around the corner, particularly, of course, climate change, but also inequality. Um, now, these are not, you know, this is all complex. Cities are complex um, uh, beings. And uh, I, I think one of the uh, messages that I try and put forward in, in my own work is that, that making children visible and embedding children into the conversation, both metaphorically, but also literally actually involving children, seeking their views, gaining insights into their experience, can really help to build a progressive consensus about what we want neighbors to be like, what we want streets uh, to, and, and, and the economy to be like, and, and, and how we can move to a more, um, a kind of longer term vision of the city uh, and a more collective, consensus about what cities should be like and to get away from short-termism and kind of narrow vested interests and equality and tackling discrimination and disadvantage is absolutely part of that and we know that you know the cities that everybody likes to live in and that are economically successful are those that manage to you know moderate the effects of disadvantage as well. It would be great if government started thinking that way about how they could produce a more caring economy i think and an economy that works around women children you know marginalized groups rather than the other way around and the women's budget group have done some some brilliant work on the impact of the care-led economy versus for example investing in construction and what they find is it, it creates twice as many jobs and good jobs as it would if you were pouring money into construction and it begins to move the economy away from some of those higher impact jobs. So I think part of part of what's needed is us to expand. I think when we think about green jobs, perhaps people are imagining building wind turbines and putting on solar panels, but actually care work is an incredibly low impact industry, if we want to call it an industry, um, tends to be very close to home. It's something that is needed in every community across the country. So it's not about targeting big pots of money to go to one place at the expense of another place. It's something that really can reach into every community. And we know it also has really positive longer term impacts, both for the children who have access to, to high quality care and for the women who work because their children have care. And, and what we need to do then is, is get childcare right to ensure that we're really pushing up the, the pay and the quality of, of those working in the sector and the security of those jobs. And what's missing at the moment is, is building the role of local government and local authorities in helping to steer and guide what goes on within their locations rather than seeing we want both universal access but also an ability to shape and grow what's needed locally and to build that in a much more democratically accountable way so childcare co-ops where parents play a role both in helping to support the delivery of childcare but also in the management of it and ensuring that the investment is going into their staff in a way that is needed. Yes I think you're absolutely right the emphasis is so much on um, the sort of the profit and productivity and, and skills regeneration and so on but 
And, and I think that's right, you know, to, to, to a great extent, we, we need to think about the post-COVID recovery and those issues are important. But what I found, Lucy, the really interesting is recently I was invited to go on a COVID, um, on a COVID commission. I won't say too much about it, which was very much business-led. And what I found hugely interesting was they were talking so much about the skills in productivity and, and how this was the time for us to rethink it. And there was not a single mention about women or childcare, even though those, even though childcare is the bedrock, if you like, uh, you know, childcare is the bedrock of, of women being able to reskill, of, of productivity being enhanced. Um, it was not mentioned at all. And I think, you know, it goes back to the lack of foresight. The, the lack of consideration given to childcare, but it's also, as Tim has said, um, look, it, it, it's completely ignored. You know, children, I mean, children don't even have a voice. Even young people haven't had a voice in this pandemic. And I think so in terms of looking ahead, we've talked quite a lot about how women need greater voice and participation in post-COVID recovery, whether it's the economy or um, the health sector or care workers. We know that women are disproportionately care workers in this country, which is, as you rightly said, Lucy, hugely underpaid and insecure. But we also need young people to have more of a voice and participation in that post-COVID recovery as well. And Tim, do you have any thoughts about how local authorities say, but maybe also national policymakers could involve children and young people more in some of these decisions and perhaps some of the decisions you were talking about in terms of child-friendly urban design? It's absolutely crazy that we're still demonizing young people, not, you know, and that's not just a cultural observation, it is a policy observation. And whenever I've engaged directly with young people or spoken with, with architects or designers who have, um, they are only full of praise for the contribution that young people have brought, have brought to projects. So it's a tr it is a tremendous waste. But alongside that, I think we also need to think about how we can equip decision makers and you know, so people like architects, urban planners, transport planners, how we can skill them up so that they pay more attention to the needs of various groups, actually women, uh, disabled people, uh, children, young people, because, you know, right now, if, particularly if you look at transport planning, it's, it's, it's entirely premised on the idea that their job is to get cars to move around more efficiently, which is hopeless if you want to, to, to create um, a more equitable, uh, green, um, livable city. So, you know, there's a, there's a big skills gap uh, or, or rather competence gap, as well as a challenge around, you know, engagement and seeing decision making through the lens of children and young people. I was just wanting to pick up on the design um, aspect, actually. Um, I've been working with parents down in Deptford for the last 18 months, and we've had some funding from the GLA to not just open a new nursery, but to, to work with a really creative um, design and build agency called CoDB. And, and that has involved working with parents from that area, with, with other new partners as well, including Peabody Housing Association, who have a real interest in making sure that their tenants and residents have access to high quality childcare close to home and they also happen to be a landlord of many many buildings so they've been able to provide us with premises at very low cost in the right part of Deptford that will work for really mixed intake of, of families and children but we've involved 
families in the whole process of what does this nursery need to look like and feel like what should our values and culture be how do we use this outside space that we've got and the design and build company have helped us to be inspired and to understand different approaches to play but parents themselves have, have been part of that conversation so both picking up tips and ideas but also bringing their understanding of what works locally what's good for their children and we've ended up with a site that isn't just a transactional place where you'll drop your kids and, and go again but something that really is a hub for the local community that people are invested in and want to see succeed and and want to play a role in so it takes a bit longer but that time is incredibly important and valuable in in the ripple effects that it's had for the parents who've taken part and the children who'll be using the setting in the future thank you lucy perhaps just to finish um i could ask each of you for your final thoughts and if if we do um as Ubeda suggested hit a second peak and perhaps more stringent and strict local lockdowns around the country What's the key thing or things that you would like to see done differently in the next couple of months? Particularly thinking about early years, it's, it's ensuring that there's a real focus on keeping settings open as much as possible, giving them the financial security to be able to, to run a rotor differently, to be absolutely able to respond to key worker families, but also to think about other children in the neighbourhood that, that could benefit from that and that's both through kind of formal places in childcare but also for many of those parents with new children who haven't been able to access mother and baby groups and drop-ins it's an incredibly isolating time for new parents as well so thinking about how we can start to create some to use some of the public space either outdoor or underused indoor space to really begin to draw together some of, of those networks doing it in safe ways but, but recognizing that there is a balance here between keeping people safe physically from the virus and actually feeding what people need in terms of their emotional um, well-being and for children their kind of opportunity to play and develop so this shouldn't be the first thing to go but but also to be really clear that without sufficient financial investment future lockdowns will see even more nurseries needing to close and closing for good so there has to be the financial support to enable them to be more flexible in the current times than, than they have been previously okay thank you tim so uh, the first thing i'd like to say there are three things really the first is is just a more proportionate uh, approach to the uh, management of play spaces, playgrounds, and really they should be amongst the last places to close. I mean, you know, we're talking about children who are, who, are, who are not affected by the disease, who are arguably don't spread the disease as much. Um, and we're talking about outdoor spaces where we know the risk is a fraction of what it is uh, in indoor settings. I think the second thing is um, to, to consolidate and learn from the work that has been going on around reconfiguring, particularly streets. Um, it has been controversial. But, uh, and, and, and we know, you know, there have been real issues in some areas, but there have been some good examples of, uh, and let's remember, this, should, this shouldn't be a party political issue. It was the, the, the national, at the national government level, there was a strong push for um, uh, road closure or, or permeable filters, low traffic neighbourhoods and all of that. So, so this, what's needed is, is, the, is a bit of kind of spine to see those through and to, to take some of the longer term learning. And then the third thing is, really looking hard at the extra support that we can give to families in neighborhoods where we know they're going to be struggling both because of their economic circumstances but also because of the, the poor quality of the physical fabric of both their homes and 
the space around them. And, and, and I think something like um, you know, targeted support from professionals, drawing on ideas um, and, and input from play workers and from early childhood experts, um, maybe even online support where that's, I know that's happened in some other countries and I see no reason why those measures couldn't be brought in and targeted here in London and elsewhere in the UK. I'd like to echo that, um, absolutely. I, what we need from this government is action to be matched by, by or, or if you like, the rhetoric to be matched by the action. And we've heard time and time again from this government that education is an absolute priority and that opening schools and keeping schools open, which by the way, is the most important thing, it is an absolute priority. But what we haven't seen is if you like that action matching those words. And what I mean by that is if schools are a priority and if keeping, keeping schools open are a priority as well as children's learning at school or online, then we shouldn't be putting pubs and, um, you know, pubs and social places and, and restaurants before schools. In the summer, we saw pubs coming before schools and we can't have that. You can't open everything and expect to still be managing this pandemic. It requires a very phased and controlled approach and we haven't seen that. What we also need from this government is every time they pass a policy, whether it's during the pandemic or outside of the pandemic, it requires an equality impact assessment. They're supposed to be doing that anyway under the public sector equality duties, but they have wholly failed to do that. Um, a good example of that um, is the government just recently tried to introduce um, travel costs for children on London transport. Up till now, children under the age of 16 have not had to pay, um, or children under the age of 18 have not had to pay to travel on London transport. The government just a few weeks ago tried to introduce costs as, as, um, as if you like a bargain, uh, as if you like an exchange with the London mayor for saving transport for London, which, was, which has been struggling financially because of the pandemic. That was the government's deal, that we will help to save transport for London if we can introduce costs for children. Now, children in deprived areas, and in London, those deprived areas are disproportionately full of, disproportionately have black and ethnic minority children, rely on public transport and free. Um, public transport to get to school. So you can't have a rhetoric saying schools are important and children need to be in school if you then remove the ability of children to get to school. And so that's what we need more than anything else. The equality impact assessments in relation to women, in relation to children, in relation to people with protected characteristics to be mainstream throughout policies. But we also need the rhetoric to be matched. We also need um, the action, if you like, um, to come through and rhetoric to be matched by, by the action. Thank you, Zabeda, for your final thoughts there. And thank you, Tim and Lucy, for your contributions as well. This has been a really interesting conversation. What's clear from everything that the three of you have said then is that women, children and young people need to be much more visible in future government policies and interventions 
particularly as we face tighter restrictions and more local lockdowns in the upcoming months. But on a more optimistic note, uh, we've also heard from you that this is an opportunity to not only rethink childcare and perhaps outdoor education, but also how we design public spaces, streets and neighbourhoods and how we should improve access to green spaces. So I hope that you found that interesting. For other episodes and more information about the Learning from Crisis programme, please visit www.futureoflondon.org.uk. But for now, I'm Sophie Nellis, and this has been Future of London City Bites. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>